Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. two episodes we laid the groundwork for the background if you like the class background for the unfolding revolution in England in the 17th century and one of the important elements here which until recently was not given sufficient weight was the decisive role of the masses which I began to deal with in the last two, uh, two sessions Nevertheless, it is important to point out that paradoxically, every great revolution in history does not start at the bottom. It starts at the top with a split in the ruling class, a crisis of the ruling class, which is unable to continue to rule in the way in which it was accustomed previously to to do. And this point was was reached in England in the period which we are now dealing with. In March 1603, Queen Elizabeth of England finally died, quite an old age, and she died without an heir, which meant, of course, the end of the Tudor dynasty, which had dominated England for for quite some time, since the end of the Roses. And the nearest relative uh, to the Queen, I think he was a second cousin, uh, twice removed, something like that, was the King of Scotland, James VI of Scotland, by the way, whose mother had been uh, assassinated, had been executed by Elizabeth herself. But nevertheless, James was sufficiently practical uh, not to be too bothered with, by little details like that, apart from which he never got on very well with his mother in any case. James, uh, the, the Sixth of Scotland, he's an in, interesting uh, character in, in his own right. Uh, brought up a Catholic, he nevertheless became a Protestant, and of course that was very useful when it came to preparing himself for something which he confidently expected, to become the king, not of Scotland, but the king of England, a far more appetizing uh, prospect for a man like James. Because James was a man who liked his pleasure, he liked to spend a lot of money, he spent uh, money as if it uh, grew on trees. But of course he was somewhat limited in Scotland, limited in many ways. He had a very difficult childhood because uh, becoming king at a very young age, he was surrounded by a, a gang of ravenous uh, robber barons, Scottish nobles each of them also vying to take power, and therefore he was constantly hemmed in by the Scottish nobility, and also to some extent uh, in fear of assassination. He thought he might end up the same way that uh, his mother had done, which was a distinct possibility. And therefore, I suppose these, all of these things together led to a sharpening of his wits, uh, which is just as well, because physically, uh, from a physical point of view, he was a rather unattractive specimen 
short of stature, rather ugly in his appearance. Yes, but he wasn't a stupid man. Oh no, James was by no means stupid. He was quite intelligent in a way. In a way, I suppose you could say that he was a kind of intellectual within the limits of the period. He written. He was quite a good writer. He wrote quite a, an interesting tract against the evils of smoking tobacco, which I recommend uh, those uh, currently addicted to that foul practice to, to read with. Uh, you could read that with some profit. He also was particularly interested, uh, actually, in witchcraft. He believed, he firmly believed in witches. He was a bit obsessed with the subject. He wrote a, a book about that also, which played a, a very pernicious role in England, when he became King, King James I, which he now proceeded to do. He'd been waiting for some time. He was a patient man. He, was, he could wait for the, until, the, until the English throne would drop like a, like a mature, like a rotten apple would drop into his lap. Yes, but he wasn't idle during all this time when Elizabeth was, was ill, was dying in effect. Oh no, he, um, he, he gave fate a helping hand by intriguing, engaging in intrigues with factions in the, in the English court. And on the, on the understanding that he would uphold the Protestant faith, which he swore to do, then of course they had no problem about James uh, traveling south to occupy the throne of England. He was very anxious was James to get hold of the throne of England, and above all, even more, to get hold of the treasury of England, because one of the drawbacks maybe of being a king of Scotland was that Scotland was, of course, more backward than, the, than England at the time, and it was rather poor. It was a poor country, certainly in comparison to the, the riches of uh, prosperous uh, cap capitalist England. It was in the process of developing capitalism at this time, and... Uh, Therefore, was awash with cash, a very tempting prospect, therefore, for King James. He travelled south by sea. I don't know whether he was afraid to travel by land. Unfortunately, he was hit by a storm, which led to a very uncomfortable journey, which, of course, he immediately blamed on witches, as you might uh, expect. Actually, Shakespeare's play, Macbeth, which contains witches, was for his benefit, actually. It was in order to curry favour with the new monarch, which I suppose he succeeded in, in doing. Now, you see, Marxism never denied the role of the individual in history. It is true that in, in a broader sense, the historical process is not determined by individuals, it's determined by processes, certain objective processes, beyond the control of any particular individual. That's perfectly true. Yes, but within the general process, the general historical trends, Individuals uh, certainly can play a role one way or another. They can either retard or they can accelerate certain tendencies and processes. In the case of James, one would have to say that, uh, uh, to give him his due, he was quite a smart individual. He was sufficiently smart to understood, understand that although his firm belief, all the, the Stuarts had the same feature, a firm belief in the absolute right of kings to the divine right of kings, Rule. Nevertheless, unlike his son, Charles, who we'll be mainly dealing with in this series, unlike his son, James was quite, uh, how shall I say, a smart operator. Yes, and he knew when to retreat, and he knew when to compromise, words which did never entered the vocabulary of his son, uh, Charles I, to his perdition. But not Charles, although he clashed repeatedly with Parliament, 
and he even dissolved Parliament. We will deal with that later on. Nevertheless, he was sufficiently smart to know when to retreat, not to go too far, not to tread on too many's toes, and thereby to maintain himself safely in, in power. His ruler, by the way, was immediately threatened from an unusual quarter by the Catholics. The English Catholics expected that they'd get a better deal from James because originally he was associated with Catholicism, but, but he changed his religion. I mean, after all, what's a religion compared to the, uh, the splendors and the money of the English court? Yes, but the Catholics, Catholics expected something better. They expected the penal laws against Catholicism to be lifted, for them to have rights and so on. No such thing. No such thing, George. But James had no intention of doing any such thing. And therefore, you had the incident of the, of the gunpowder plot, which is well known in Britain, at least, of the 5th of November. Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. Where they attempted a chap by the name of Guy Fawkes and other Catholic uh, elements, some of them nobles, actually, attempted to blow up the, house of, the Houses of Parliament. In fact, a, a rather cruel saying uh, goes around that uh, Guy Fawkes was the only person that ever went to the English Parliament with honest intentions. But there we are. We'll leave that to one side. The plot failed. It was bound to fail. It was discovered by the secret police and they were executed. But of course, this, this of course, consolidated uh, Charles's position as a Protestant king in a Protestant uh, country. James had a habit of spending money, as I've said, and there was plenty of ways in which he could spend it. I mean, the, his court was uh, characterized by lavish court dances, parties, picnics, and balls, and so on, masks. One of these masks, these lavish entertainers, might cost thousands of pounds quite easily. At a time when a thousand pounds would be the equivalent of a million pounds or more. In, in modern money. He spent a lot of money. Above all, he spent a lot of money on his favorites. And he had a particular liking for handsome young men. Men like, for example, there were quite a few of these people, but to name the most famous one, a man by the name of George Villiers. Villiers was a young man, handsome, physically attractive, not too bright, not, not, in, not what you'd call intelligent, but armed with a certain animal cunning, which he displayed uh, throughout his uh, unscrupulous life. Uh, not too bright in the in intellectual department, but very good at uh, dancing, fencing, and riding, which is just, just the kind of thing, of course, that, uh, that you'd expect for, 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 for a leading sp statesman of the court of St. James. And King James, of course, rewarded him lavishly by promoting him to, the, uh, to all kinds of uh, key offices, and finally uh, uh, ennobling him as the Duke of Buckingham. And it's the Duke of D Buckingham that's going to play a prominent uh, role in the events which I'm about to, to describe. He then became the, the key advisor of the king. You see, what, what you always find in, in all these uh, absolute monarchies is that there's always a court clique, a court camarilla, uh, in which the, the king is surrounded by a tiny group of counsellors, of advisors, of ministers, and so on, who generally do all the dirty work and therefore attract all the odium of the uh, ills and cruelties and barbarities of these uh, absolute monarchies. 
The future King of England, Charles I, was born in November 1600, the second son of King James VI of Scotland and his wife, Anne of Denmark. Charles at birth was a, a sickly, puny child. In fact, there was even some doubt as to whether he would uh, survive. He subsequently uh, was affected by a limp, perhaps caused by rickets, it's not clear, and also by a stammer, which this uh, speech defect affected him for the rest of his, his life, more or less. He was also extremely short, stunted uh, in, in, in height. He was about, I think, five foot four, which is extremely short for a man, even in those days. And therefore, one would expect that a child of this uh, character would have all kinds of uh, complexes, shall we say. Particularly bear in mind that Charles was never intended to be king. He was king by an accident. His, the throne should have gone to his brother, uh, Henry, who nevertheless died in November 1612, I think, of, of uh, typhoid after it is said, an excessively strenuous uh, game of tennis. I don't know how tennis can give typhoid, but we are. that's what the writers uh, said. He died anyway. And therefore Charles was suddenly propelled from a position of relative obscurity to being the heir apparent to the English uh, throne. Now, of course, I don't think it is uh, very useful for someone like myself, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or an expert in this field, to attach too much importance to psychology, particularly in the case of a long dead individual. Yes, but nevertheless, it's interesting to note how, uh, according to my observation, one can see that uh, an excessive lack of confidence on the part of certain individuals can, be, can express itself actually in the opposite in an excessively arrogant, assertive uh, egotism, if you like, uh, which compensates in a sense for, for a pr profound uh, lack of confidence. I firmly believe that that was the case of, uh, of Charles I. I mean, all, everything which I've just indicated is physical deformities, his stammer, his limp. The fact that he was never, never supposed to be the king anyway. He was uh, like second best, if you wish. These are hardly the ingredients to, to, to create a, a confident young man. And of course, uh, that uh, would have affected Charles's uh, outlook. Yes, but he changed in the course of his adolescence. He managed somehow to get rid of his limp, which indicates again to me a certain strength of character. He has a certain willpower to overcome his deficiency, partially overcame his stammer, although it, it, it asserted itself when he was uh, in a nervous or angry uh, uh, mood. But here are the ingredients of, of, of something which I've, I've seen. I've seen this myself with people that, that I've met in politics over the years. A, an extreme, if you like, inferiority complex, to use an old-fashioned uh, term, expresses itself in, in the opposite sense as, as a, a kind of arrogance, extreme ambition, extreme self-projection. I've seen this on more than one occasion. I believe this was the case with Charles. Charles was notorious Everyone found him overbearing, arrogant, egotistical, uh, greedy for power, uh, intolerant, not, not willing to listen to anyone's opinion and so on. 
And as a matter of fact, although of course it's not possible to, it's not possible for us now to uh, psychoanalyze a long dead monarch, nevertheless you can get a, quite a good idea of Charles's character and psychology and personality if you take a trip to the uh, to the National Gallery in London and to the Portrait Gallery. Just look at the portraits of Charles. I mean, I strongly recommend this. You, you see his character is written in his face. This arrogance, this extreme self-projection, this uh, uh, monarchical spirit is there. Uh, the, these portraits are the expression, the artistic expression of the divine right of kings. I'm thinking of one in particular. There is a, a famous painting of, uh, of Charles, painted by the famous uh, Dutch painter Van Dyck which you'll find in one of the London galleries. I can't remember which. It's an equestrian st statue. He's, he's mounted on a horse. This is a huge, for a start, it's a huge, uh, a, a picture of huge dimensions. 3.6 meters. It's like twice, twice life-sized. He's mounted on a huge horse, uh, galloping straight towards you. Uh, it must have had some effect, this portrait, particularly in its original setting in the, the Palace of St. James, where it occupied an entire wall. So as you'd enter this gallery at one end, at the other end, you see this picture of this colossal horse with the king riding on it, riding straight at you, which must have, must have caused quite an impression to the amb ambassadors and others who, uh, who, who witnessed this spectacle. The king, if you notice, uh, the painting is, is uh, clad in shining armor, splendid armor, uh, his horse is a war horse, a splendid, uh, fiery uh, war horse, which he controls with perfect ease. And yet, if you notice his feet, his boots, he's not wearing spurs. This is significant. And the horse and man are riding through an arch, which is a triumphal arch, a symbol of triumph in war. Now, what does this uh, indicate? This, uh, this is full of symbolism, of course. Very often the paintings in that period were full of symbolism. The horse signifies the English people, the people of England, and its rider is absolute model, in absolute control is King Charles, who doesn't need spurs, so, so the painting tells us, doesn't need spurs, just a little bit of pressure is sufficient to guide the whole nation through the arc of triumph and to go from one success to another. It's, it's, it's a very uh, powerful uh, message. Unfortunately, it's got very little to do with reality. Uh, as we shall see, <laughs> Charles couldn't control the nation at all, with or without spurs. And he used spurs a lot more than he used his, uh, a, a little bit of pressure to deal with people, as we, as we shall see. It is important to realize at this time that foreign policy, diplomacy, was invariably exercised through dynastic considerations, dynastic politics of different monarchies, and through marriages in particular. If you wanted to link with a, a foreign power, you would undoubtedly marry a prince or a princess to, to a member of the uh, relevant royal family. And of course, this also was the case with uh, in, in Stuart times. Buckingham and James had secretly, it had to be in secret, because bear in mind there was a lot of hostility towards Catholicism in the population and in Parliament in particular. Uh, they, they'd secretly cooked up a marriage, a marriage plan anyway, 
to marry, to marry off uh, the young Prince Charles to the Spanish Infanta. I think she was the sister of the Spanish king, actually. Uh, this was quite an attractive proposition to James to link up with a powerful nation like Spain, but a Catholic nation, of course. And therefore, Charles and Buckingham went to, to Madrid incognito, dressed up in fake clothes to disguise their appearance. Why, I can't imagine, because they were immediately identified by the frontier guard who reported them, and then they were given permission to proceed. The mission, however, turned out to be a complete uh, failure, an absolute farce, to be uh, accurate. The Spaniards, I don't think they were particularly interested in linking up with Britain, with, with England at that stage. And they treated Charles and Buckingham with absolute disrespect. They were kept waiting, kicking their heels for weeks, if not months on end, in uh, antechambers of different Spanish palaces, while, while Spanish diplomats ran circles around them and put outrageous demands, mainly circled on, centered on the religious question, of course, to lift the penal laws against Catholicism, to have rights for, for Catholics and so on. And even that Charles himself should become a Roman Catholic. Now, that's an interesting idea. That would have put the, the fat on the fire immediately. And even hinting that they would like England, the whole of England to become Catholic. Now, this was going too far. And Charles realized eventually that th th these guys were not serious. And in any case, there's no way that the English Parliament could accept any of this. He knew that perfectly. And therefore, in a high dudgeon, in furious and humiliated, Charles and, and Buckingham went back to, uh, to London with a tail between their legs. The one, one positive thing from our point of view is that Charles didn't travel back empty-handed. Uh, like his father James, he was anxious to spend a lot of money, which didn't belong to him, public money. He, he came back with, with cartloads of paintings, precious paintings and ornaments and statues, which he picked up, I suppose, relatively cheaply in Spain and uh, other European countries. Uh, uh, these are artistic treasures which are still present in uh, museums and art galleries in London for us to enjoy. So that's something we can be thankful for to, to Charles. But anyway, uh, from that moment onwards, the idea of an alliance with Spain was, was dead in the water. They couldn't proceed. They were, they were humiliated. And therefore, they, they lurched in another direction, again in secret, secretly seeking an alliance with France, another Catholic country, but a Catholic country that was hostile to Spain. And what James was hoping for, this is what a bit complicated, they won't go into the details. He, he had a, a, an angle in this. There was a relative of theirs who was the king of the Platinate in, uh, in Germany, occupied by Spain. He wanted the assistance of France to fight against Spain to assist the Platinum. That was the rather complicated uh, machinations of the diplomacy. The price was, of course, that he wanted Charles to marry uh, this time the, a French princess, uh, Henrietta Maria, a person that does play a very important role in English politics from this moment onwards up until the Civil War. So we will deal with her a bit. Uh, uh, later on. But the, the main thing is the marriage itself was a diplomatic incident. It was not, if you think about it, it wasn't an easy thing, far from it, for a Catholic lady, a Catholic princess to marry a Protestant king. This was uh, uh, unheard of, as a matter of fact. 
And it was only possible through a decision of the Pope. Pope Urban uh, gave his permission eventually, but with strict conditions. And by God, they were strict conditions. That uh, the, uh, the, the Queen, uh, Henrietta Maria, would have the right to practice her religion freely. Catholicism, which was illegal, by the way. You could be hanged for carrying out the rights of the Catholic Church. The Queen was allowed to, was, they, they agreed to this, the treaty, the marriage treaty specified that she should be allowed to have her own chapel, her own service, uh, should be attended by her, her own priests and confess, father confessor and all the rest of it, without any lateral hindrance. Furthermore, the children of the marriage, which should be brought up as Catholics, all this was uh, strong stuff. Uh, and there were other conditions also, which Charles accepted. As a matter of fact, in secret, this was never made public. They couldn't make it public at the time. There would have been a riot. In secret, he, he, he stated that they would, in fact, lift the penal uh, laws against Catholicism, that it make Catholicism legal in, in Britain. Now, as far as Maria and Henrietta uh, 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 and Maria is concerned, I think she's an interesting person in her own right, a very strong character, stronger than Charles, I would say, far stronger. She was a convinced Catholic. And the only reason, she was a devout Catholic, the only reason why which would, she could be persuaded to marry Charles is if she could turn him from a heretic into a, a true Catholic. And that was her aim in life. I mean, from a personal point of view, you could understand. Here's a woman, a devout Catholic, who believes that she's married to a heretic, who, unless she's converted to Roman Catholicism, to the true religion, is going to go to hell. And therefore, she had a, a duty from a, a personal and a religious point of view to convince him and to, to, to do this. This is an important factor, and the reason I'm spending time on this, this is an important factor. Bear in mind, the religious question is a fundamental question in England and internationally at this time. The presence of a Catholic queen in England was not very popular, shall we say, quite the reverse. People were scandalized, people were horrified. For example, she had her own chapel, it was not a new chapel, it was already known, but this chapel was really so unpopular that the apprentices were gonna tear it down at one stage, but anyway, they didn't tear it down. Instead, it was refurbished, it was painted, it was decorated, it was uh, given all modern conveniences and so on, filled full of uh, gold and silver ornaments, crucifixes, uh, paintings, all kinds of things. Uh, the, huge, the huge ornate door with the pillars and so on uh, indicated the entrance to her private little room in the chapel where she could receive visitors, much the same as Charles received visitors at court. And it was like a kind of parallel Catholic court, an island of Catholicism within this, this, this Protestant realm. So strong was her feelings that she, she wouldn't attend Charles's coronation because it was a Protestant thing. The, the, the wedding they had separately, but the coronation, no, she didn't attend it. And in fact, she consistently pushed her luck, shall we say as far as the Catholic angle was concerned. There was a flood of conversions among the Arist English aristocracy, flocking to uh, the queen. And she deliberately encouraged this. She was always seen in public in the company of her father, confessor. The story goes, I don't know how far it's true, 
that he once accompanied her to Tyburn. Tyburn, that's a place where there's docks uh, on, the, on the River Thames these days. It used to be the, a place of execution where people were hanged, and many Catholics had been hanged at Tyburn. She actually went there with, with her father confessor. He was riding apparently on horseback or in a carriage, I can't remember which, and she was walking behind, barefoot it seems, to, to, to underline the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church over the Queen of England. Uh, this, uh, these rumors, when they circulated, that they caused absolute horror. And they did circulate in those days because people had access to uh, the printing press pamphlets and so on and so forth. And therefore, all of this stoked up opposition to the, between king and parliament, which is the central question which we have to discuss next time. I repeat, all real revolutions start at the top. And here you have the beginnings of a fundamental cleavage between king and parliament. Of course, the religious question was extremely important. There's no question about that. But there was also an even more important question. That was money. Uh, King James, James died in 1625, I believe, and was succeeded by his son, Charles. Charles saw his father off in the manner to which he would have been uh, accustomed with a gigantic funeral, a lavish funeral with thousands of people. It cost a colossal amount of money. If my memory serves you, I think it cost the equivalent of $250,000. But Charles was not counting, of course. He was like his father in that respect. James spent a lot of money either on his favorites or in foreign wars and other adventures of that sort. And he bankrupted the, the treasury. James I left Charles with a bankrupt treasury, an empty treasury. Empty. Now here's a problem. Here's a problem. The king has got absolute power, yes, but there's one thing that he hasn't got absolute power over, and that's money. The parliament, which existed uh, all this time, since uh, time immemorial, since the Middle Ages, there was, there was always a parliament representing mainly the nobility in the early stages. Now the nobility plus the bourgeoisie, the merchants of the wealthy classes. The parliament, the parliament alone had the right of taxation. The king did not have a right of taxation. This was a sore point as far as Charles was concerned. He needed cash. He needed money apart from anything else. The, the, the king James had signed certain contracts, certain agreements with France specifically, to engage in certain wars. Wars cost money. Charles didn't have money. Simple as that. He therefore had to appeal to Parliament. He actually wanted to continue with the Parliament that existed from James's day. He thought he'd get a good deal from there. But, but the, uh, the parliamentarian said, no, it's not possible. That was James's Parliament. Now you've got to have your own Parliament. You must call elections. They had elections with a limited franchise at that time. A new parliament was called. Uh, Charles, a young, handsome, uh, up-and-coming young uh, monarch, was pretty confident that he was going to get the money that he required to wage foreign wars. He did not. Parliament had already acquired considerable power during the reign of King James, gradually. See, what we have here, we have, must be clear about the setup. The king and the court clique had absolute power, that's true. They had all the political powers in their hands. 
Parliament didn't have any political power whatsoever. It was only an advisory body. It wasn't, when we say parliament, it wasn't a parliament in the sense that we would understand it. It was an advisory body which the king called at his convenience and could dissolve at his convenience. Yes. And he had all the power. Yes, but the parliament did have this one power which the king did not have, the power of taxation. And this therefore led to uh, a conflict, a conflict of interest. Charles was demanding money. Parliament offered a miserable amount, but he regarded it as an affront. There was a tussle between them, and he got seriously offended. And of course, he ended up by, fairly soon by dissolving the parliament and calling another one. In all, I believe in the space of uh, less than a decade, he called from, from, from 16... 25 to 1629, that's what, about five years, he called three different parliaments and dissolved each one of them. In other words, there's a constant struggle taking place between what? Between the king representing the old order, the old uh, absolute order, the absolute monarchy, and the rising bourgeoisie, that's what it boils down to, who had the cash, they had the money, and they used the money as a weapon, as a lever, in order to gain more power. To sum it up, uh, there are two words that can sum up this conflict between the king and parliament. The king had what, what is known as his prerogatives. That's power, real power, political power. He had his prerogatives, as he, his prerogative, he would call it in the singular. The parliament had not the prerogative, but they had what they called privileges. Now that's an important word. They gained privileges. Bit by bit, they were clawing, and stepping forward and grabbing elements, parcels of power, which they would describe as privileges. They had the privilege to do this, the privilege to do that. Above all, in taxation, they had that privilege. And it's the struggle between the royal prerogative and the bourgeois privileges, which are at the center of the struggle, which now opens up between king and parliament. And on that issue, you eventually end up with a civil war in Britain. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.